Welcome to the official podcast channel of the Australian Physiotherapy Association, the latest in clinical, academic and health leadership, giving you access to preeminent physiotherapy research from Australia and across the globe. Across the APA membership, few names resonate quite as strongly as that of Laura Mosley's. A giant in the world of neuroscience and scientific discovery, the South Australian was last year honoured with APA honoured membership. In this podcast, Lorimer is joined by fellow pain physiotherapist Diane Wilson as they discuss the course of the former's research career, including the development of his clinical philosophy and more generally, the future of pain management. So, what does the honour mean to you? Well, I must say I was quite surprised when I got the phone call about it. Um, I'm really chuffed about it. And the, I guess the surprise came from feeling at times over the last sort of 15 years of my journey that uh, some of what, what we were discovering and trying to implement was very difficult for some physiotherapists to embrace. And I had a few pretty difficult conversations mm. along the way. And to be endorsed in this way by, I guess, by my professional people is... A, is is really the word that I, I feel like I should use is humbling, but it's never really made sense to me using mm. that word because it doesn't make me feel humble. It makes me feel quite proud. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know what I mean. Yes, I, I've, yeah. I'm very grateful for yeah. it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess I felt surprised, grateful, but, but also I think a bit excited that we've passed the tipping point in our profession. Yeah. And uh, I was very rapt to be alongside David Butler um, who is yeah. an inspiration to me and probably triggered the shift in my journey. Yes, I think that once before I've heard you speak about how he influenced your pathway. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> well, the, the the situation I remember was pretty funny. I, it was a conference, could have been on the Gold Coast actually. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was at, at Jupiter's. It had something to do with surfing, I think, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> I, I was uh, really looking for a way to claim my trip up the coast on tax deduction and there was this conference that I was marginally available for. I was ready to leave physio. I'd enrolled in another course at uni and mm. um, walked in and there was a fellow in bright glasses, bright jeans, uh, talking, well, encouraging everyone in the audience to look above the foramen magnum mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the brain. And at the end of his talk, I think I, out loud, said all right and I was the only one excited about the talk I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I went down like a lead balloon but for me it was it was fantastic and I decided to persevere and and I'd been you know relying a lot on on my understanding of the biology of pain to direct the treatments Mm. that I was Mm. delivering which were highly you know education-based treatments I was explaining pain really Mm. and there was a guy suggesting that might be a good thing to do and it was great, yeah, so it really did shift. So it was a life-changing event in a way. It was, yeah, it was certainly a vocationally life-changing yep, event, yep, yeah. Yep. And I think it has taken a long time to for things to turn around and for pain in the way that we understand it today to mm. be accepted across the profession. And I think the exciting thing is that you can actually see that in this conference presentation, all of the impact that your 
your work and David's work has done and it's finally coming to hmm. to to be shared which is and accepted which is fantastic yeah I, I mean I'd, I'd certainly give Dave more credit than me on that I think that his stamina and uh, just holding the line on on stuff that he uh, feels is correct in the midst of some pretty brutal treatment around the place and yeah no I, I think Nearly all the credit should go to Dave. I'm a little bit sheepish about him <laughs> being included in, in that, but um, nonetheless, I'm thrilled. So, um, did you move straight from a clinical career at that point into research, or did you transition? No, I. I mean, that wasn't wasn't the only time that I'd thought of leaving the profession. There are, there's three times that I remember in where I I thought that I wouldn't. Be a physio anymore. One was before I started. Mm -hmm. So when I was leaving uni, I thought, I don't want to be a physiotherapist. And uh, I ran out of money and had to become one, and that was fantastic. <laughs> uh, and then there was that that time, and that was in mid-90s, I think. Right. Uh, and that triggered a shift from working with elite athletes right. uh, into a pain program. Mm -hmm. And I guess it really triggered a, a shift towards valuing the skills that I felt that I did have and being less intimidated by the, the absence of other skills maybe. Right. Uh, yeah, and then then several years after that I was, uh, I guess at another sort of pseudo crossroads and I got approached by the university department to do a PhD on the basis of things that they saw and really I thought, great, I'll have... PhD, that's fantastic. I'll just be able to sit back and do nothing for three years and learn how to smoke or something, get a jacket with, with leather patches on the elbows. Uh, I was very naive to that. But, um, yeah, that, I mean, that was a clear shift in my direction where yeah. I jumped from only clinical load into predominantly research. And, and I'm not a natural researcher. I wasn't a natural researcher. <laughs> you should say on podcast, die has interesting look on face. Uh, my eyebrows are raised. You're doing pretty well if you're not a natural researcher. Then well, I don't know. Maybe that's not the, the right, the right description. But um, I would say that uh, Paul Hodges, who was one of my PhD supervisors, who is, in my view, a natural researcher. He's uh, incredibly sharp and and methodical and dots all the I's and crosses the T's and very very driven in, in that sort of research mm -hmm. way. And I, I don't have many of those characteristics naturally. I'm an it'll do guy. And I would describe Paul as almost teaching me how to do science. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a pretty big task that he had. So I'm very grateful to, to, to that. And being his first PhD student was a real privilege because okay. I got a lot of attention that I, I think would be less likely if you're his PhD student now right, right. I imagine mm -hmm. yeah anyway I don't know how we got onto that but that was a fun <laughs> tangent how we how we move from a clinical career to a research career so I think um obviously it's developed exponentially over the years and so what have been the um the main changes that you've seen in your career or how have you kept it moving on the trajectory that it's currently moving yeah that's a tricky one Di um when you're in the in in the zone of the research space that I feel like I'm in now, so I'm, I guess I feel like I'm just at a, a more senior level. I'm certainly not one of the big posho guys, but or girls, but but I have a 
a team of people that I supervise and mm-hmm. and I pay. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the biggest changes has has been the the feeling of responsibility to right. a group, and that's a really that's that's a challenge that I've had to mm-hmm. um, call on resources to cope with because. You, I don't know if I can pay some of my guys next yes. year unless yeah. I get a grant and it's very competitive and 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 historically I've had great success and mm. you know, this year I didn't have success and I think wow so this is what it's like to get hammered by the system and mm. um, so I think some of the if if I was to look at what's what's changed I think it's more a shift in uh, what engages my my thinking and doing time now. Um, I said I wasn't a natural researcher. I think that I'm a natural explorer. Right. I think I'm an explorer by mm-hmm. nature. And I, you know, when I was working clinically, uh, I really, I really observed people and patients and found the, the perplexing questions really exciting. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm naturally like that. Yes. I'm just, I'm just not naturally skilled for the job. I'm probably just more suited to it from an exploration perspective. And and now I. I feel like I have to schedule my time to include exploration. Yes. That's creative side of it and really engaging with tough problems and thinking about them. Because if I didn't schedule that, uh, I would be spending all my time searching <laughs> for money to pay other people. Yep. That's a real, I find that yes. a really difficult yeah. balance. Because the research world, to me, is much tougher than I would have ever thought from the outside. And so mm. you're obviously bringing that point out now as well. Um, so how would you describe the current state of research translation in, in pain science? Um, you know, is, are we uh, in the health science field, are we moving in a similar direction? Are we moving faster than some other areas? How do you feel we are in pain science? Yeah, I guess it's the, I guess it's the area with which I'm most familiar. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know what of I mean. Course, yes. um, yeah. So I don't know how we're progressing in other areas as much, mm. um, but we no, we're definitely definitely moving. I mean, we've got we've now got data to show that mm-hmm. some of uh, Tori Madden's work is really interesting, where she's looked at what physiotherapists, uh, or, or actually it's it's beyond physio, what health professionals think about the question whether we can have nociception without pain or pain without nociception Mm -hmm. and 12 years ago uh, a range of professions 80% of people would have said no to that and we know that we have data we ask the same question now and 70% of people say yes so 30% say no so there's definitely but that's a really rapid shift actually yes we're definitely moving and translation into practice is happening I mean, sometimes it feels like it's really slow, and mm. I and I think for the the people who get it, and one of the greatest things about about the dissemination part of my work is is seeing when people get it. Mm-hmm. And I was at a conference last week, and someone came up to me and said, oh, "I heard you talking on a, a podcast. It might right. have been okay. not nearly as groovy a speaker as this one, <laughs> but um, I was talking about." The exhilaration that I get as a PhD supervisor yeah. when students somewhere, you know, in that first year of their yes. degree, suddenly it changes. Yes. Or you see clinicians who suddenly, after 30 years of slow demoralisation, yes. these heart sink patients, yes. 
something flips and it's exhilarating. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's full of opportunity and and I I love that. And but when you before that stage, I think you can be so demoralised because you're you're trying to work in this model, you know, maybe biopsychosocial model or the model that understands the complexity of pain. Mm. And your patient goes to see their GP or the physio down the road or their surgeon mm. who isn't up to date with the research mm. and they fall off and they continue their downward spiral of disadvantage. And yes. I speak to a lot of people who are so demoralised by that or really intimidated by the complexity of... The, yes. the, the reality of the complexity. Yes, yes. Um, but I say... I always say to them, uh, persevere. Yes. Because... When you can step outside, it's. I think we're we're on or past the tipping point mm. for it. Mm. And one of the pieces of evidence that I that I think really uh, demonstrates that is the fact that it's now a commercially viable product. The idea of of changing how we practice yes. has been grabbed by the capitalistic monster. I mean, this is particularly in the states, but you can see it around the world. People are entrepreneurs are behaving badly in my view mm -hmm. uh, because they see a buck in it and I and I think now the monster's got it and it will succeed right. uh, so in a way I'm quite happy about that yes so the the translation of what we know in science to how people are practicing I reckon will only keep going it's almost like a stone gathering moss isn't it it's actually I think so yeah getting faster and faster and yeah. you know we had the pain network inaugural workshop yesterday of any APA conference oh, and we right. had a really good attendance of that and we had some quite well-informed physiotherapists who attended and so I think that you get those well-informed people and then that's going to spin off so I guess you've answered my question there although we have all been frustrated I think up to now the slow translation of pain science into mm. clinical work but well, and I don't think those frustrating days are over. I think that we'll still hit them. You know, mm -hmm. we have conversations around the lunch table yes. in our group about the the curriculum being mm. slow to change, mm. or mm. Uh, or the number of people who come to the conference is a small proportion of the number of clinicians. Yes. Uh, but I I definitely think it's changing, and the fact that that chronic pain is now recognised as such a costly. Mm. problem mm -hmm. and we have to defend our space as physiotherapists yes and, yeah yeah. yeah so as a profession how do you think we best approach this divide well I guess I, I mean my answer to that question I guess always comes back to my approach to relationships and I think we are best being open-minded and mm. and kind to each other and patient with each other and um always I guess always taking a, a long-term view uh, I'm, I'm less angry than yeah. some people in my space yes. you know, about mm. it because I can really understand if if I mean one of the the things that I see and I'm not you know I'm, I don't have the crystal ball or the I'm not the sheriff of truth but I what I perceive is that some clinicians when they when they learn about the complex biology of pain and uh, the reality of some of our assumptions about our treatments, mm. um, they really kick back against that and, and they sort of fold their arms in a mm. no way, research is letting us down, you, these hands are magic or whatever. Mm. Uh, I, I really understand if, if 
if you're of the view that your worth is wrapped up in in the world view or the physiological view of, of what you're doing clinically, mm-hmm. then someone saying things may not be as they seem is yes. a really confronting message. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I've seen that, but you know, I celebrate that I see that far less now than I did ten years ago. Yeah. Good news. So I guess one of the ways that you've helped to disseminate all of your understanding and research and beliefs is through the Body and Mind um, website. And um, can you tell us a bit about how that was developed and how that continues to evolve? Because I think that's an important way Mm -hmm. of getting across to not just our profession, but you know, we know that in this space we need to be very much interdisciplinary and so yeah. it, it reaches out to all professions and we can't work alone in this one. This is too complex for us to work alone. Yeah, I agree, Di. I, and that's that's a nice trigger for me to uh, be reminded of... Uh, I'm not a physiophilic <laughs> person, you know. I don't, yeah. I don't really think... I'm not motivated by... Uh, advocating for the interests of physiotherapists, I'm, I'm not motivated by ensuring our place in the in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Other people do that and do that well, and they do feel impassioned by that cause. I don't, mm-hmm. um, but I do feel impassioned by uh, the the possibility that working with other groups we can improve the burden personally mm-hmm. and, and societally mm-hmm. of chronic pain. And I think we can. Um, I. Th- Body and Mind was uh, really a fortuitous development when uh, a friend of mine was working for a publisher and resigned on ethical grounds. Mm. Uh, and it was a high-cost resignation for her because wow. she was she was stuck a long way from home and didn't have a clear income. Like, it w- was a really principled mm. decision. And I'm a sucker for people doing stuff like that. And... And I met with her after that and said, there's got to be a way that me as a scientist and you as a publisher yes. can do something really good here. Mm-hmm. So we hatched the plan of Body and Mind. And, and the idea, I guess the mission of Body, Body and Mind was to, to get research to skip the 10 or 15 years that it normally takes right. to get into a textbook and then into a course mm-hmm. and then to the punters. Yes. Yeah. In this case, the punters are the clinicians. Yes. Um, so we started, yeah, I think we started in 2010 or something like that. And recent. Mm. Yeah, and we, you know, now we've got section editors, although we're in the process of a revamp because it's really hard to fund it. Yes. That's a really big challenge that we have, and um, for a couple of years I funded it personally, and then, I, then it slowly manoeuvred. So now I fund it out of operational costs, but they're getting yes. smaller. So we're in the zone of thinking, how, how do we keep this alive? Right. Um, but I think it serves a really important purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we, we make a bigger hit in the science space, in, in the clinical science, um, than anyone on the planet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there are thousands of people in dozens of countries, countries. Yeah. who let us know that they rely on it, actually. And it's getting into grant applications. You know, I wrote for Body and Mind, and so uh, I, I still love the idea of it. It's really hard to measure the impact of it, and that's something that I'm, I like to be able to do. But you can't really yeah. do it. You but must get a lot of feedback though when you do travel overseas on, 
on that um, website because it's reached so many people. Because in a way we are in a very lucky space here in that we've got access to some mm -hmm. great researchers like yourself and access to um, almost anything that we can on the planet, but not everybody's in that same situation. No, I mean, a lot of countries around the world, they can't access journals mm. um, and their access to the clinical science space is is body and mind. And there are there are some other sites yes. that have different models, mm -hmm. but, but our site is very much not promoting us. Yes. It's trying to promote the science. Yes, yeah. So we ask people to write blog posts on their work and then we mm -hmm. have people like you and other people who, who help turn that into a language that clinicians can understand yeah. easily and access. And, and that can be challenging as well, coming from somebody else's perspective into turning it around and sending it out again and with the message that we want yeah. to disseminate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I guess we have to be careful on, on that as well because you know, as soon as you're passionate about something, I think you lose a little bit of critical mm -hmm. appraisal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of the biggest challenges is having uh, absolute top shelf legends in the field mm -hmm. submit a blog post and yes. have it rewritten by a PhD student because <laughs> no one else can understand it, and uh, that's had a few, you know, okay. led to a few interesting yes. interactions. Yes, so I guess um, that probably leads us into letting us know a little bit about some of the research projects that your team's currently undertaking. So how that is going to build into general population and I don't think it's just physios here it's everybody that's working in the pain space and how you're um, complementing that mm. knowledge base. Well the group as you know the group does a reasonably diverse range of studies all captured under this umbrella of exploiting the brain and mind in improving outcomes for people in pain or preventing chronic pain but, you know, one example, one great example, Di, is your work. I mean, <laughs> it's not about me. <laughs> I, I know it's not about you, but, but just, just think of the potential impact of understanding what it is, and I'm really not talking to you, but to the people inside the speaker. Yes, thank that, you. Uh, you know, so Di's work is, is looking at what is it about a pain management group dynamic that we can exploit to improve outcomes. That's a, that's a great question, I think. I think yes. that's a great question. And... And you are a great person to be asking that question because you've got the experience in the in the groups. That's not physiotherapy. That's no, that's, that's health science. It's that's quite broad, isn't it? Professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but relevant to that, I think, is that physiotherapists, and this this is relevant to something you asked me earlier. Um, physiotherapists are at the cutting edge of this translation mm -hmm. and this development of an understanding of how complex pain biology can transform clinical practice. Yep. Physiotherapists are at the leading edge of that and I think a lot of physiotherapists don't realise that. And in, in other fields I think we, well, that's, we're probably at the leading edge of a few fields, but in pain the naive person would presume that anaesthetists or pain physicians are at the leading edge mm -hmm. and they're certainly in the mix as well, but we're not taking a, a passenger role on that we're very much driving it and if you look at the the international award winners for mm. clinical science research right. the I, the international association for the study of pain has only given out three clinical science awards and physios have got two of them so that's that's pretty, pretty good isn't that's it? pretty good yeah. and and i think in countries like australia and britain netherlands scandinavia 
people look to physiotherapists to lead the way in clinical management yes. of, yeah. of pain. We're, we're so well placed because of our rapport with patients and our clinical reasoning skills that yeah, no matter great. what area we've come from, we're, we're there and um, can make such a big impact. And I think it's becoming apparent that the profession has to change. We can't continue to do the same things that we've always done because of healthcare costs and, and yeah. politics virtually. And so managing pain in a different way from what we've done in the past is imperative for us. Yeah. And so your research is going to fuel that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not just mine, obviously, but um, it's, I reckon it's a watershed moment for our profession. Mm. This moment, you know, obviously it's not an instant, but this moment, no. whatever it is, uh, that will require us to decide whether we are physical therapists because we're learning more and more that it's a wide skill set yes. that we yes. rely on and we're very credible for patients when it comes to determining safety or, or danger for the body Yes, and no other profession has the mix of that and the time that we have. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think we're, we're realising that the, the key element of what we do across all these different techniques and strategies and paradigms, the, the common element is is our rapport and our conviction mm -hmm. uh, and intent to give people the mastery of their situation. Yes. And we're really good at that. Yes. No one, no other professional group, although I'm not physiophilic, no other professional group has the mix of skills and training that we have that can, can lead yeah. someone back to life. Yeah, so that's something to really celebrate and develop further, isn't I it? I reckon. So yeah. where do you think um, the, the next main areas of research in the pain field will lead us, uh, from a global perspective and also from, yeah. from your research team's perspective? Yeah. Um, well, I think that we've now identified that chronic pain is, is as costly as any other health condition. Yes. There are governments around the world who are, I guess, accepting that reality and putting resources into it. I think ours is getting close. Um, some states are in front of others. Yes. Ours die. Is ours not is front, not but, at the forefront. But it is moving. Sure. You know, I think that, that there's a spirit of, of intent in, in our state as well. You really um, have to have that champion pushing, don't you? I think you, you do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but where it will go, I, I suspect that if we can make it happen, the biggest dent that we will put on the problem, mm -hmm. so that the biggest benefit that we will offer, will be by changing community attitudes to pain mm -hmm. uh, and injury mm -hmm. and what you should do when you're in pain and what how common is it to be in pain and how uh, I think if the world could grasp the concept that that pain reflects a buffer mm -hmm. of protection okay. uh, then we would be less likely to panic when certain parts of our body hurt you know most obviously our back or our neck mm -hmm. and it's a trigger for catastrophic interpretations because the whole system's wired for yes, that. Yes. So I think there'll be more research into sort of mass conceptual change. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we throw around this idea of early intervention. I'm probably most excited about the idea of, of early intervention that emphasises reassurance. Not just, it'll be alright, don't worry, no. but really targeted change your conceptualisation of of this, uh, I'm here to convince you in a reassuring way yes. that all of the evidence suggests 
this will get better if we adopt a graded exposure approach, yes. really. Yeah. Um, I think the, the property of biology that most excites me and gives me most confidence is adaptation, bioplasticity. And if we give the body a demand, it will adapt, but we have to find the line between adaptation and protection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, research, I think we will learn more and more at the really tricky, sophisticated end. And our group is doing some of that work where we're investigating theories on why some people get complex regional pain syndrome and others don't, or uh, why some people develop chronic widespread pain and others don't. Mm -hmm. and those things are very important in my mind, but I feel like they're not the big kahuna. Mm -hmm. I feel like the big kahuna remains uh, what you think your pain means right. from a danger safety perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I reckon that's the big kahuna and, and the rest. And there are groups around the world who are doing great physiotherapy research, looking at you know, what muscles do, in what situations how the brain changes when you're in pain or at risk of being in pain. Mm -hmm. But the common thread for all of those things, brain imaging, motor control, physiology, uh, kinematics, our stuff on cortical body matrix, the common thread that goes through all of those things seems to be to me, if the, if the brain or if the, if the being, if the organism concludes that you need protecting, it will produce pain mm -hmm. and any cue that's relevant to protection, danger or safety, will modulate that. And if we can get good ways of changing that conviction yeah. so that it's accurate, mm -hmm. I think we'll revolutionise and, and the, the situation and we'll reduce the burden. I really do think we will. Uh, but I don't know when that will happen. No. But we uh, continue to drive that because it is a very a, the world's most burdensome problem so yeah. in terms of... Yeah, I mean, people debate that. People say, oh, no, it's mental health. Well, it's either mental health or chronic, chronic back pain. Yeah. So it, let's do both really well. And there's so many commonalities well, between those things. Yes, we, we have so much overlap there, and it's such a, a complex issue that it's really not worth even trying to tease them out sometimes, no, is it? I think, I, I think you're right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your insight into your research yourself and to where you think your research and those of others in this pain field will take physiotherapy in the future. Thanks, Di. Thanks, Loz. Yeah, no worries. To find out more information, visit physiotherapy.asn.au.